Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and thanks for listening to The Bip Show. I'm Paul Colgan, here in Sydney, recording this episode on this, uh, the 9th of July, 2020. Bip is for business, investing in policy, and that's what we're here to talk about. James Whelan is on assignment up in the Blue Mountains, uh, but I am joined, as always, on the line from Amsterdam by Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. G'day, Ken. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Paul. Good to be here. Great to have you on again. Uh, I have some news to share this week. Uh, I've joined Global Research and Campaigns Consultancy CT Group as a director. Uh, Many of you will know the company by its previous name, Crosby Texter. Uh, It's an exciting bit of a career change for me, I suppose, after 20 years in journalism and editing, but I'm delighted to say that the BIP show will be continuing. So our guest this week is Kerry Craig, Executive Director and Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan here in Australia. He's joining us from Melbourne. Hi, Kerry. Great having you on the show. Hey, Paul. That's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Now, some of you may be familiar uh, with J.P. Morgan's Guide to the Markets, a quarterly publication that uh, should be essential reading, I think, for anybody interested in finance, economics, and uh, the state of business around the world. Kerry looks after the Guide to Markets in Australia, and it's always full of not just global insights, obviously, but also themes um, uh, that you'll find Reams and reams of uh, Australia-specific analysis in there. Um, We're going to start off talking about uh, uh, equities. Um, We'll try and get to a bunch of things as well, including global inflation, uh, maybe the US election. But towards the back of the show, too, I want to have a chat about having a view on the macro picture on one hand, um, which is something that we sort of talk, we exchange views a lot on this show about um, the trajectory of the global economy, um, uh, macro forces, etc. Um, but then it's one thing to have that picture, but then it's a, another altogether to actually do something with that uh, and act on it in a way that might be profitable or uh, help you grow your business or understand your customers, um, whether it's through investing, business development, and so on. That, you know, So I, uh, I'm hoping that we can get to a, um, a, a good uh, conversation around that uh, towards the back of the show. Now, recessions can do weird things, distorting what are usually fairly useful uh, reference points in terms of understanding economic fun- fundamentals. Uh, the standout chart in the Australian edition of the Guide to Markets uh, this time, Kerry, was around, uh, for me at least, was around the, the ASXP ratio. Um, that's rocketed above uh, 19. Uh, and on the chart uh, that's in um, uh, this edition, you just see it as, as this enormous spike uh, over this quarter. Now, um, for listeners who might not know what the PE is, um, maybe you can explain it first and then talk about what's happening there and, and where we might expect it to go in future. Yeah, of course. So uh, the PE here is the price to earnings ratio, where we're looking at the 
earnings expectation uh, from consensus, from analysts, for the market as a whole over the next 12 months. Um, and it's typically used as a, as a guiding valuation metric in normal times to see is the market trading above average, above its long-run average, is it expensive, is it cheap? Um, and the reason that's done is because if you look at historically where the valuation on the market has been, uh, and then what the return has been, your valuation can dictate quite a large percentage of your returns because obviously the more you pay for something now, perhaps you know it's not going to go up so much in value in the future and therefore your return. So it's always better to buy when the market's cheap rather than when the market is very expensive. Uh, and so that chart really does stand out for a couple of reasons. Not only the fact that the P multiple at the end of the quarter was just over 19 times compared to the long run average for the ASX of about 14 and a bit, it's the fact that it's swung around so massively over the last few months. Um, and it's really a question if you're, you know, a bearish on the markets, on equities, you can easily look at that number and say, well, the market's really expensive. You don't want to be in equities at the moment. They've really too hard. They've disjointed from the economic reality of what's happening around the world and in Australia. And it's just too much enthusiasm, not quite irrational exuberance to steal a word from Greenspan, but there's too much enthusiasm in the markets right now and you're overpaying for stocks. Now, that's not the case to us and because it is, as you mentioned, things being distorted quite heavily um, by what's happening in the outlook for earnings. And it is a ratio of the price to earnings. And what's happened is around a recession, it's just very hard to get clarity on what those earnings or E will be. So the earnings have collapsed. And so that ratio of price to earnings has gone up massively because the denominator in that figure has fallen so significantly. Yeah, so um, yeah, earnings very, very uncertain. There's huge earnings downgrades, uh, not just in Australia, but obviously uh, in the US and in Europe as well. Um, now, but there's um, uh, an important dynamic at work here too. And we touched on this in the show uh, last week uh, with our guest, uh, Chris Weston, uh, where we spent quite a bit of time talking about global equities. Um, but Chris mentioned the equity risk premium. And I thought this might be something worth uh, revisiting. Um, maybe you can explain exactly what equity risk premium is um, as it works in regards to non-risky products um, for, for anybody who's not familiar with this, the concept. But again, then maybe you can talk about how it, um, this might play out in future with uh, interest rates unlikely to go anywhere for quite some time as we, uh, uh, from, from where we sit now. Yeah, certainly. And the two are related if we think about the risk premium and the valuation in the market at the moment. So equity risk premium, I mean, you get paid uh, a certain extra reward from owning risky assets like equities. And so the equity risk premium um, in its very simplest form is just the amount of risk or the amount of additional return you should get buying something that's not a risk-free asset like government bonds. So it's not quite that simple in the calculation, but that's how you can think about it. It's basically what you should be expect to be earning above owning a very risk-free asset like government bonds. So it's about the risk-reward trade-off for owning equities. Um, and the risk premium, as you mentioned, has, has rocketed as well. Um, There's it, a few dynamics at play. The equity risk premium it really reflects to us not that the equity market is 
extra risky in terms of what you should be getting in back, but it's really a reflection of the fact that the risk-free portion of that calculation has fallen given bond yields have gone down so low. And while it is elevated today, uh, if we look at historically, it has moved quite significantly higher. We've actually been in a regime of higher equity risk premiums since the GFC. So it's a, an element of you know central bank actions, quite QE, all the liquidity that's gone into the market, asset price inflation, whatever you want to call it. It's that kind of narrative which is actually fueling this risk premium to look higher because those bond yields on the risk-free rate are so much lower this kind of herding of, of money into more risky assets. You know, central banks want businesses out there, uh, including banks, they want them out there lending, um, they want them out there investing, um, they want um, new projects starting up, etc. That's kind of the underlying sort of principle of what uh, uh, central banks have, uh, are, are, have done by setting policies um, so loose to try and, you know, reignite growth, get, in, get jobs, get jobs growth in, in various economies where they're working. But, um, you know, is part of the effect of this to to basically financially herd money into um, into stocks in a way that uh, might um, produce some, you know, uh, unwelcome distorting effects? I'm not sure that was the outright intent. You're, you're right, the intent of or QE when it started was to <clears throat> move savers into spenders to make... Um, companies uh, more ag uh, aggressive in their capital and investment as money was so cheap that was the desired effect and you know it will have a portfolio rebalancing effect as well which is what you've seen in terms of you know equities moving higher and the liquidity coming through um, so it has had well it actually is very difficult to say ex ante what it's been because you can't take the market and strip out the effect of QE and see what it would have been so there's other ways we kind of have to, to judge it and actually that equity risk premium is one way of judging the effect of all that excess liquidity in the market by looking at the impact on bond yields and what the value would actually be in terms of, of the value for the market as well and you can do that simply by thinking about the decline in earnings per share that you're going to see in the market over the course of this year obviously all those earnings downgrades that have come in we think about the earnings collapse and why that PE multiple is high. And if you looked at that fair value without adjusting for the fact that bond yields are very low, markets would look expensive. But then if you say, well, actually, that discount rate is so much lower, um, that risk-free rate is so much lower, actually, markets don't look as expensive because some of it's that relative valuation argument compared to bonds and why stocks still look good. Um, and, and some of it's the fact that you're in this new environment of where you are going to have uh, lower bond yields for longer, that QE and these liquidity measures have become a very normal part of central bank policies and will be used in the future. And that is really what all the stimulus has shown us, whether it's from governments or central banks, that it's really been a game changer for how we think about the bond market and how we think about equities going forward because they will be so ready to use these tools. And we do know that it can create um, asset price inflation was that a bubble? Is that a distorting effect? That's uh, potentially a different question, but I think it's something to bear in mind when we think about are stocks expensive at the moment and will valuations suddenly revert back to their averages? Uh, the answer to that's probably not. If I, if I could just, sorry, Paul, if I could just jump in there and, and, and ask Kerry, it, it's something that you raised in terms of, um, Paul, I mean, in terms of, you know, herding into a particular asset class and whatever else. What I've noticed, and I suppose um, I'm not alone in this, but what's been a standout to me in the last mini-cycle, let's call it, pre, pre the COVID stuff, is the fact that given the underlying backdrop, given the, uh, you know, 
cash or risk-free rates are so low that, that money is essentially so free and cheap and whatever else, and that uh, bond yields have, have, have ever been have been going ever lower. We've seen a huge move towards alternatives, stuff like private equity, venture capital, and you know the, the soft banks of the world and the WeWorks as a consequence and whatever else. I suppose what I'm trying to understand is, uh, you know, what drives us away from that, if ever, and what are the consequences of that? Because, I mean, obviously people are looking for somewhere to park that money and make the most use of that money and have it being the most productive. But we're also seeing a ridiculous allocation of capital to stuff like WeWork, to stuff like, I don't know, I mean, you know, plenty of, plenty of things that have blown up. I mean, anything SoftBank's essentially touched has been not great in inverted commas. So I'm just wondering, what, what's, your, what's your view on that, Kerry? Where, where do you see that sort of going? Um, it's, it's a great, great question. And it's a thing we think about all the time and it's a conversation we have more and more with clients. It's around, you know, not to be too simplistic about it, but the old, you know, 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds or whatever you think a balanced portfolio should look like and how that's not going to operate in the same way in the future, whether that be because of, you know, the diversification benefit of bonds being uh reduced because of the, the very low yields and the no cushion there anymore, or whether it's the growth prospect from equities and getting back to those expected returns on that portfolio. So that narrative is definitely changing. And I think it's more a case about maybe money's gone into ideas that you know didn't play out with some of the companies you mentioned, but there's definitely a reallocation happening across the board in terms of how growth and diversification is found in a portfolio because of that. For me, the conversation is more around the asset classes and it is into private equity for maybe growth but you're not getting out of the equity market. Um, technology is a great example of that because there's greater exposure to technology and private equity than there is in public markets. Whether it's through income, through real assets such as real estate and infrastructure that you're not getting out of the, the bond market, which is quite sort of non-cyclical and relatively safe if you want to think about it that way or whether it's being you know quite opportunistic around private credit and that part of the market where you can actually also generate some better alpha if it's uh if you have that risk profile as well so i think the 60 40 portfolio of stocks and bonds has definitely probably had its day and you're definitely seeing that shift out in terms of how investors are accessing the market or even whether it's they're blending more hybrid into their portfolio in terms of say high yield bonds and investment grade credit particularly being around this idea that that's the new form of duration that you're not getting out of uh, government bonds anymore mm. okay it's certainly an interesting question because i think that you know there's been a conversation this year in australia in terms of uh, as um, investors and portfolios kind of hunt around for asset classes to find yield and returns um, when they can't get them out of bonds, um, particularly the safer bonds, the safer government bonds. Um, you know what constitutes a defensive asset, right? So, um, if you're trimming your exposure to bonds and want to find some more reliable, uh, steady returns, and you mentioned property as one of those, uh, as one of those items. Uh, one of those potential uh, sources of, of, of income or, or, or capital growth, um, you know, can that be classed as a defensive asset? Uh, but as you say, it raises an interesting question, doesn't it, Kerry, about whether, you know, we need to sort of think differently. Um, there's a need to think differently about um, what, uh, what an overall typical portfolio is going to look like going forward. No, absolutely. And it is <clears throat> about finding 
the thing that provides ballast to portfolio or against that risk that you're trying to hedge against. So, you know, the assets that we're talking about now, you know, liquidity is obviously a constraint for many investors. And so we think about core real estate and there are things that are unlisted and so do have lockup periods and are hard to access for many people or if it's infrastructure is the same thing, but they're very much non-cyclical and they are going to benefit you over the long run. Maybe because you're forced to be invested for that length of time and you can't make any perhaps irrational decisions towards it. So that takes some of the decision making away from you. Um, but it's also about the fact that they're assets which do have that uh, durability to them as well, which make them sort of beneficial in lowering that diversification, whether it's within that group of assets themselves or to the other assets you have in your portfolio, such as stocks and bonds. So uh, I want to talk uh, specifically about um, some stocks uh, because <laughs> um, we, we've had, uh, you know, it, it is a bit weird in equity markets uh, on some days. We're, we're seeing what looks like extreme exuberance, particularly on some select stocks. So um, overall, you know, we've talked about that distorting effect of, uh, of, of you know, when you've got a low E, you've got a um, much higher PE ratio, um, but then just in sheer market cap, uh, some uh, uh, companies have been you know growing very very quickly, uh, and some large companies. I think one great stat that I saw during the week that uh, Amazon's market cap is approaching the the entire GDP of Australia um, at the moment. But uh, there's an, another good example is Tesla, um, uh, which has been just you know, it's been you know, a whole bunch of different. Uh, analyst upgrades have seen its uh, share price rocketing. Um, and then in Australia, we've had, uh, it's a smaller company now, but uh, it is seeing some good growth um, and people are piling into uh, Afterpay. And I think it's, it was only about 12 or, you know, 12 or 13 weeks ago that the share price was 10 bucks. And everybody thought that, well, not everybody, but quite a few people thought that it might might go to zero. Uh, but now they, uh, you know, it's, be, it's been on, uh, it's at all time highs. Um, one of the questions I sort of think about uh, here is, uh, I'll put this to both of you, I might start with you, Ken. Um, is there a chance that one of these companies, which has, you know, where the share price is, is going a bit parabolic, um, that it snaps and everybody goes, okay, we've had our fun now. Um, the valuation of the company doesn't justify the share price at these levels. It's, um, but let's, let's trim our exposure and you get a sell-off in that stock. And is that the thing that could trigger a broader sell-off at, at a time when markets are a bit jittery? I think uh, conceptually, maybe, but I think you need to look at least for, for uh, I'll, look, I'll wait for Kerry to sort of weigh in on this. But for me, if that were to be the case, I think you'd need to see that sort of um, uh, price action, let's call it, in the likes of a Google or, a, or an Amazon. or a, I mean, if you're looking at a spec stock, be it, you know, hers that's bankrupt and all of a sudden it's gone up a million percent or, you know, an afterpay that wasn't, you know, it, it was trading at 10 bucks, which is fine. People thought it could go to zero because, you know, the asset could get involved in terms of predatory lending and whatever else, but it didn't, and here we are. I think stuff like that is less likely to kick off a chain reaction whereby people actually take a moment and think to themselves, oh, hang on, stuff's really actually blown out here. Uh, let's take stock and let's let's reevaluate. I mean, spec stocks and spec asset classes are exactly that. They'll be blown in and out with hot air 
and and sort of react accordingly. But I don't think they'll necessarily be able to kick off a wider chain reaction to a broader asset class because people all of a sudden will start to reevaluate. You know, what's the meaning of life here, and have we gone too far? Maybe find something else to buy. Kerry, uh, what, what yeah, do you exactly. think? Yeah, but Kerry, what do you think? Well, yeah, I tend to agree a little bit there. I mean, it's it's anything home you have like <clears throat> one company with a very large capitalization in the index. Of course, if it moves, it will move the index. It, it has to be very large for you to do that. So as Ken mentioned, you, you know, Google and those those big stocks that happen. And I, and I think there's a case of, you know, looking at the price history of the companies you mentioned. And I'm not an equity analyst. I'm not that familiar with these companies in depth, but, you know, they, they have been at the lower end of the price range, you know, Tesla was famously had some uh, very large shorts against it uh, in its early days when it didn't meet production targets for cars. And in fact, you can buy some nice red Tesla sorts, I understand. But there's specific <laughs> companies with specific idiosyncratic. And I think the risk would be if you did think about maybe the broader tech sector or, or, or um, uh, some of these financial companies in terms of is it the secular trend and the growth in tech that people are buying into or is it something specific about that company? And to really see a broader sell-off and given the heavy rally we've seen in defensive relatively tech-led names you know it's going to be really something that upsets that story and there's going to be companies that's going to get dragged along with it which then get um, shifted out and you kind of saw that when we talked about um, consumer stocks and people referring to them as tech stocks and they weren't and it was the idea about true tech versus other things and so it would have to be a narrative that really said there's something wrong with this sort of growth or secular idea in, in tech that we don't like, rather than just one or two names that would lead to a broader sell-off. I see. What, one of the things uh, that uh, I think is interesting uh, more broadly when thinking about the equity rally is, uh, Kerry, you're of the view that we may be at the start of a new cycle, uh, which when you think about it like that, very much changes the, the the picture around equities. Yeah, it does, and you could you could debate it, and we have. Um, you could look at what's happened in terms of the the nature of the shock we've felt, and said, well, is this the actual end of the last cycle and start of a new one, or did we get a, a pause in the current late cycle narrative that we'd been in for a very long time? Given the yeah, the recession we had was very deep, but was very short. You know, it's probably over now, and like ended in May in June in most parts of the world. Um, we would definitely take the view that it's going to be the start of a new cycle from here on out, given you did have that recession. And you look at the things such as, you know, just the output gap and the the fact that many companies are just countries are running below their potential, that, you know, consumption investment lowers a share of GDP, unemployment's high, inflation low, consumer confidence is low. These are all the things that we look at when say, actually, if you want to consider where we are in the cycle, that would suggest early in the cycle. And then you said the same thing with, you know, spreads that widened out but are contracting is another indication of that. And so for us, it is definitely the case of saying the last cycle has ended and this one has started and that you are going to have what we think is already a foothold in the recovery that will continue uh, and that you should see the earnings react to that. And obviously that should have a better outlook for, for equities over the next 12 to 18 months. The difference though is that in this cycle and where there isn't clarity or we still are looking for it is around the durability of it, uh, if you want to put it that way. And it's much like 
you know, myself in my younger days, when I ended one relationship and entered another one, I took a lot of baggage with me. And that's what we think about, you know, the economy right now. It's taken a lot of baggage with it in terms of high leverage, uh, private non-financial corporate debt into this one. And so this early part of the cycle may be quite short-lived and suddenly we find ourselves in the middle part of the cycle very quickly. So the shape of the cycle might be different given the nature of what's caused the recession and the fact that we didn't get rid of a lot of old baggage from the last one. So I think it's going to be a new cycle, but it's a very different one, but still a positive one from equities for here. Yeah. Well, because it's look, it's a really interesting uh, point because um, there are there's almost nothing good about a recession. But one one useful thing about it is that it tends to um, you know clear out waste, non-performing uh, companies. Um, you know, debt gets written off. Um, you know, uh, but there's this question now about are we particularly with all of the fiscal support that's been out there, uh, and also to some extent uh, the monetary support, you know, you get very high levels of debt, but then the fiscal support uh, and uh, in the corporate sector, the ability to borrow uh, a lot of money, you know, very loose credit conditions, basically. Um, you have companies that are surviving that in, uh, if, if conditions were just a little bit tighter or if there, was, if there wasn't the fiscal support there that they might... Uh, be cleared out, and you would unlock that capacity then for um, the the next the start of the next cycle. Um, do you think that's a bit of a problem? Yeah. So, like in economic terms, maybe some of that creative destruction hasn't happened because you've uh, prolonged companies' life that should have um, collapsed and, and freed up capital and freed up resources to be used, hopefully more efficiently elsewhere in the economy. So that's why the risk and and again the people flag is the end of these schemes that the governments have introduced, whether it be around assistance to small businesses or keeping incomes in households high through JobKeeper or the Paycheck Protection Scheme in the US and you know that's that's where people are worried about that fiscal cliff or the fiscal edge coming through to that could actually upset that so you know delinquencies will go up defaults will go up there have already been some very high profile defaults come through and I think that will continue so it may be a case of uh, an exaggerated path to get to all that creative destruction but it eventually will happen um, and in the meantime I guess the, the governments and the central banks of the world are trying to smooth that path as much as possible whereas in the past it was a very aggressive deleveraging and an aggressive drop say we saw in the GFC and this time they're more willing to use the tools to really to smooth that out and um, dull that, that cliff edge that we could see. Uh, could talk about this all day. Uh, we got to take a short break and we pick up the conversation uh, right after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Welcome back to the BIP Show. Paul Colgan here in Sydney, joined by Ken Vexler on the line from Amsterdam and Kerry Craig, Executive Director and Global Market Strategist with JP Morgan uh, here in Australia. He's on, joining us from Melbourne. Now, look, one of the other things, Kerry, that was interesting to me was, I uh, just want to look at this quickly, was um, uh, the global inflation outlook. Um, so the, one of the things we've been talking about um, for, for, for many years now uh, in macro policy um, and looking around the world, there, were, there, were, there was no sign of inflation uh, anywhere you looked. Um, at the start of this year, though, I thought it was interesting that there were little signs of some of it in the inflation heat map that's in the guide to markets uh, for, this, um, for this quarter. Um, now, there's a bit of, obviously a bit of a cooling again. We've got uh, inflation data coming up soon in Australia. It's expected to be absolutely horrendous, uh, like very, very low. Um, but what, what is the outlook here on, on inflation? Because it's a big question um, uh, with debt levels where they are and with rates where they are. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's tail risk around the outlook for inflation. I would definitely preface that by saying in the near term, I mean, the disinflationary forces from the pandemic are, are stronger. Uh, and so it will be a case of thinking about those very weak inflation prints uh, over the next few months. But once things do start to normalize and we think about inflation being a year on year comparison, so, you know, in 12 months from now, 18 months from now, we think about perhaps airline prices being a little bit booked to normal and Pavel maybe being able to travel a little bit more, you know, that's going to start to show up in the inflation data and you will see these these spikes coming through. So I think you will get a little bit more inflation over time, but not inflation that's going to cause a concern in the next couple of years around what it means for the policy response from central banks and a sudden reaction to it. I think if anything, central banks are very much less sensitive to inflation now than they have been in the past. And one of the reasons inflation has been so low is that they've been so successful in drumming in this idea that inflation should be around 2%. And for a very long time, you know, inflation forward expectations in the market actually said that because that's what central banks told them. So I think inflation you know, has the potential to move higher in a year from now when we see those base effects kick in. Um, but over the long run, it should actually come back a little bit more given we do have those tailwinds from fiscal stimulus, from monetary stimulus, um, and we should see it pick up. But again, I don't think it's a worry for, for the very near term. It's one of those tail risks we probably think the market's underappreciating for the long run um, in terms of what the market price is actually Maybe saying. let's talk about and that's, this. And that's, that's Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there, Colgo, if I could. I was just about to ask you to, Ken. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Good, good. Um, yeah, look, I, I, on the one hand, this could be a very naff question, but on, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I just I need to get to the bottom of it. I'll try and get my head around it. I mean, as, as a growth metric, which ultimately inflation is, is seen by many economists and, and certainly central banks, I mean, does it even really matter anymore? And, and what I mean by that is that I appreciate that central banks have obviously been targeting, the, you know, roughly 2% or something being in dance to 3%, whatever it is. Um, a, they have failed to achieve anywhere near 2%. Uh, B, of course, the market, and we've seen this with with the Fed, basically the market, you know, becomes self-fulfilling. The market understands that this is where the bank wants it to be. So looking out at the, you know, whatever, five-year, five-year or three-year, three-year, whatever, they will always price it back, you know, inflation or look to target tips and whatever else back to that 2% area. And so as a consequence, you know, that's where market expectations end up being. Central bank thinks it's done its job, happy days. But 
outside of real inflation for the for the every man on the street who who sees their loaf of bread getting more expensive or petrol or or, or whatever it is as as a metric do, does it even really matter anymore and and is central bank targeting of this you know mystical two percent that they don't seem to get anywhere near on paper at least does it even matter i mean are, are there better uh, gauges you know better things to replace that metric with well, that's a conversation that's happened um, throughout the end of last year and into the early part of this year before we started thinking about other things. But, you know, it was a case of thinking about, you're right, central banks have not been able to achieve that inflation metric. We wrote about this in a paper last year called The Failure of Monetary Policy. Um, and they're probably not going to achieve it anytime soon. If you look at the forecasts that come out from either the Statement of Monetary Policy or the Fed, Fed um, forecasts themselves, they all say in the long run they'll get back there, but it's going to take some time. And they always push that out further and further until they do get to that inflation target. So I think there's a recognition that they're going to struggle to get there and that's why you do have, say, the Fed, for example, is going through that process of reviewing their policy framework and they may go to an average inflation targeting framework. Um, they may produce guidance that says, well, listen, we're not going to do anything with rates until we see a certain number on the unemployment rate, not full employment, but just a number on the unemployment rate to provide guidance to markets, which would suggest that it's not just inflation they're worried about in terms of of it being too low or too high um, and then there's been other calls for like looking at nominal GDP in terms of uh, the way the economy is behaving and not just grow, uh, inflation at all so there's definitely scope to change and I think the the advent of all these extraordinary policies that have come through suggested that just as the central banks have been more um, adventurous with how they divine policy tools that they will also reshape the way they think about how they'll be applied and how the economy is behaving I mean, if you want to take to the extreme, you could argue that what's happened most recently with um, government spending and central banks, in some instances, just buying directly those bonds. We look at what the UK did from the, the Treasury and the Bank of England. You know, it's modern monetary theory. And, and in that case, it's virtually impossible to have an inflation target or keep inflation in check and consistently be financing the government. So I think it will change. Um, it might not change anytime soon, but the inflation metric for now in terms of central bank policy does have less relevance. I think the unemployment rate uh, and full employment has more. Uh, and then you'll get more of that forward guidance from central banks of this and we're not going to do anything until this happens. And you've heard that from the RBA. I mean, they have a, a three-year yield target. They had their yeah. repo operations for three years. They basically told you, we're not moving rates for three years. I mean, you're going to get some very clear guidance around that. And that's regardless of what inflation does. It's a delicate balancing act, isn't it? Because, um, you know, they, they say, have, certainly the RBA has a very explicit uh, goal of maintaining... Uh, inflation between two and three percent through the cycle, but their you know their that might be their stated goal, but their actions, um, you know, would would suggest that they're much much prefer um, growth um, to see you know prioritize growth first um, and not worry um, too too much about targeting measures to to increase inflation, and if there was to be a uh, shift in um, explicit policy to say, look, we're not actually going to worry too much about the inflation target. We are going to, you know, if they were to give in terms of guidance or, or explicit policy in some way, um, would there be consequences to that to to that kind of shift? Um, what might it look like, Gary? 
Well, I think it would be in terms of, you know, as Ken mentioned, that the, the forward-looking parts of the market, you know, anchor themselves to what the inflation expectation has been driven into them. And, it, and if that did change, you would have to think what would happen to the outlook for, say, the bond market, what would happen to the shape of the yield curve if, if central banks are, are, are no longer sort of trying to adjust its shape over time and how would the market really react to that. So I think there would be some interesting dynamics in terms of the expectations that would be placed on where yields could go uh, if there was no longer an inflation target and how that would be built into the term premium and the, the long run view um, because right now it does seem like you know the short end of the curve yields can't move because of central bank action but you know the, the longer end should start to rise as you see a bit more growth come through and, and markets start to price that so it, it would for me really be about the bond market and then for if the bond market changes how does that flow through into the equity market if people adjust where they think yields can go but for all intensive purposes this discussion really is around the fact that inflation is not going to be really a problem in the near term and so that really shouldn't change the narrative around how the bond market and equities will behave over the next 12 to 18 months in, in our view of of the world. So look, amazingly enough, uh, we're already in Q3 for 2020. Um, although I'm, I suppose some people would would say that the year is not going fast enough. Uh, it's been it's been it's been uh, it's been a, a quite a, an extraordinary year and very difficult in so many ways. Uh, so that we're in Q3 already, and in Q4 we've got a U.S. election. Um, now, um, what are the risks, Kerry? Um, I suppose people will need to start thinking about this in, in terms of, uh, you know, we've got uh, Trump against Biden. Uh, uh, what might that look like and what are you thinking about? Um, there's, a, there's a few things that we consider around this. I think the first thing is considering just the electoral process and then the US and what's happening with the, the spread of the pandemic or COVID-19 right now and what that would actually mean for potentially the election. So would it be an in-person voting system or would you have mail-in? And uh, more states are seemingly preparing themselves to have a mail-in vote or make it more possible for a lot of their population. So if that happened and you had more votes being mailed in than in-person, I mean, there's always the potential, if it is a very close race, for it to be contested. And so, you know, come November 4th, the day after the election, that you don't really have clarity on a clear winner, perhaps. And so that would be the first part of the market being, well, we knew this was going to be volatile. We don't really have clarity. Um, the second thing to think about in the lead up to the election is, is really the policy dimension. And while we pretty much know uh, President Trump's views on the world and his policy agenda, I mean, uh, Senator Biden's one isn't quite so clear. There's no actual number around what he thinks the tax rate should be or he's come through it. We don't have um, a running mate yet announced and, and that could be a big decisive factor. Um, but there's a few things we do know and that is there would be a change to the corporate tax rate uh, and probably a tax rate on individuals and higher income households. There would be a change around um, energy and renewable energies and there would be a change around technology, probably antitrust rules as well. Um, there wouldn't be a change in attitudes towards China. It does seem like that's something that's consistent across both parties. But how that relationship is fostered would perhaps become a little bit more diplomatic under a, a democratic-led uh, White House or potentially government as well. So, Indeed, and uh, has that, that relationship has been one of the driving forces of um, financial markets the last few years. Yeah, and so you could see perhaps more stability and less uncertainty around that in terms of tariffs no longer being um, used as a stick uh, and trying to get that foreign policy agenda done. Um, and, but you could also 
well, I think we would also expect to see that would be still a point of contention. I reckon there's a pretty strong view from the US government around the involvement of China in the US economy and in technology more broadly. Uh, so that was not something that we would expect to go away. It just may be handled in a slightly different way than it currently is and perhaps less publicly. Um, but there's also the fact that the US economy is is not in a great state. You know, the, the, the resurgence or resurgence of the, the virus there does mean that, you know, you could perhaps have a lower growth rate coming through in Q3 and it may be even dragged out to lower longer in the year. Whoever's in charge come November or January next year when they're inaugurated, if the economy's not in a great shape, they're probably not going to do too much around the policy agenda that's going to upset that and potentially damage the outlook for the economy or even the corporate world. So there's the case that any of these big policies that could hit certain sectors could be delayed for a little bit until the, the market and the economy look a bit stronger. Um, so just turning to Australia quickly, um, you mentioned obviously the China question being in the calculus uh, for the uh, risk assessment for the end of the year. Um, obviously, Australia's relationship with China are very interesting and uh, we're recording on, on Thursday and, and just today um, uh, the Prime Minister announced that there is going to be um, visas, uh, there's going to be an extended visa scheme um, for uh, Hong Kong citizens who are currently in Australia and they'll also make it easy for um, uh, for Hong Kong businesses to set up in Australia, etc. Uh, it is going to be interesting and it will not be unnoticed in, in Beijing. Um, but uh, obviously that relationship with China being Australia's biggest trading partner is uh, super important to um, you know the outlook uh, for, for how Australia's economic mix and activity looks going forward. Um, so um, that's one part of, of the picture for Australia. Um, and Australia's handled where we are right now. We've handled the, the, the COVID outbreak uh, quite well, notwithstanding the setbacks this week where you are. Uh, in in Melbourne, um, but it's not going to be straightforward. Uh, and um, how are you thinking about the other factors um, that are uh, that might affect Australia uh, once we get through this uh, initial shock um, and, and figure out a plan for going forward? Um, you're right. Yeah, your view of how well Australia's handled the pandemic really depends on which state you're in. I think, and uh, <laughs> it's not so good from where I'm sitting, um, but. Yeah, we, we often think about, you know, one of the reasons when you like, well, Australia's handled this really well, it was just the physical distance to the rest of the world. It's the same with New Zealand. Being very remote and far away was actually one of the things that, that really helped in having a, a lower density population in many part, other parts of the world. Um, but now that it's with us and we did have that recession, and it did seem like we fared better than we thought we would, certainly a few months ago, um, about how the recovery and the shape of the recovery looks. So, you know, you will get that initial v-shaped bounce that comes through but then beyond that it's actually going to be quite a, a protracted period to get back to those pre-pandemic levels of growth and we've benefited from the fact that they had that big supply disruption for iron ore out of brazil and so as fiscal money spending was amped up in china you know it naturally flowed into australia through um, the iron ore and bulk market um, and that hit the, the equity market as well but beyond that we've also got this context of you know, the first recession in a generation for many people or more than a generation for many people and how that'll affect 
affect their attitudes towards savings and spending and debt um, and whether that will make a big difference over the coming three or five years as we think about um, those people coming through those young adults and how they will behave then you still have these issues around leverage and household lending you know any changes attitudes towards the saving rate uh, and paying off that debt in lieu of consumption will obviously be a point of uh, softness for the economy in terms of that being a big driver at 60% of the of the Australian economy household spending um, and so these are the things that were with us before back in January uh, and they're still with us now and that's really that point around affecting the cycle and the shape of the cycle this time around all that excess leverage and how people will really behave this time will change it and then the relationship with China you know it's that question of is China going to look to diversify its sources of where it needs those imports such as bulks from uh, and move away from perhaps that reliance, if you want to call it that, to Australia, uh, which could be quite um, detrimental in the long run. There's there's also the political dimension, if you think really strongly. And you, your new role will be able to explain this better than I around, you know, the South Pacific, more broadly Australia's role there from a defence uh, perspective and its relationship with this US as well. You've got to promise me one thing. When we get a better handle on how all of the consumer household uh, sector is, is shaping up uh, and what the job market looks like in, in a few months' time, you um, come back on the show and we'll talk about uh, how those factors are, t- are taking shape uh, um, uh, uh, and what we might be able to discern um, from the data. Um, that will uh, be awesome. Now... Um, one thing that we, I think we'll, I'll hand it over to you guys um, to, to talk about this. Um, you know, it, everywhere you turn, uh, there are people with macro views, views on the world. Uh, you know, for a long time, there was a kind of a China bear story, um, you know, where people talked about the leverage in the Chinese economy, um, you know, uh, asset bubbles, etc. There were risks that... Um, uh, made them decide that uh, you know China's growth story uh, had uh, been too strong for too long, and that, that it was going to change, and 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 it never did. Uh, and if if that was a trade that you were uh, uh, trying to pursue, um, then uh, it would have been pretty painful. Um, so I thought it'd be good to and um, turn it over to you, uh, Ken, maybe um, to talk about this idea of you know having a macro view on the one hand, uh, but then turning it into uh, action on the other. Mm. Yeah, th- thanks, Colgo. And it's, it's something that, well, obviously, we touched upon, I think, earlier in the week, just having a chat. But it's for me, it's something that I've been thinking about, well, for probably the entirety of my career in, in one way or another. I mean, um, everyone likes to claim that they're a macro thinker and, you know, they see the big picture and then they sort of drill down from there. But in reality, very few, uh, I suppose, uh, Real, real, uh, real life examples or applications of that actually exist. In that, you know, if, if you're in a big hedge fund or a, a pension fund or whatever it is, and you can apply your macro thinking and your macro framework to the real world. Up until the GFC, um, that was relative, not so much relatively easily done, but there was more scope for that uh, type of investing that type of trading that type of uh, thinking and, and mentality and framework post GFC obviously uh, things shifted the the ground shifted policy responses uh, sort of shifted as well we, we, we saw the monetary policy responses we saw some element of fiscal although not enough and now subsequently obviously with the COVID pandemic we've seen again more monetary more fiscal uh, stimulus and more responses like that 
for me, and, and Kerry, I'm, I'm hoping to get your view on this, obviously, but for me, the biggest issue has been that in the last decade or, or maybe smalls less, the macro framework has become increasingly meaningless. Um, and but what I mean by that is that to me, the macro framework has always been about looking for disparities, looking for in inequalities between various economies, be it on a geopolitical scale, be it on a financial scale, and looking to benefit in relative value terms, playing one off against another, one economy off against another, or uh, sectorally uh, looking at the market and thinking about, okay, the next big driver of demand or supply is going to be X, Y, and Z. How do I want to be positioned for that? What's what's the demographic uh, situation going to look like globally, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Many, 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 many facets by which to look at it. For me, increasingly in the last couple of years, all policy responses have tended to one. They, they all seem to correlate to, to the one... Um, one policy response, and, and the only variable seems to be, on a global scale, the timing and the size of that policy response. But in actual fact, and, and the COVID response has, has proven that, everyone pulls the fiscal lever to a degree as much as they can. Everyone pulls the monetary lever as much as they can. Rates go to zero, rates go negative. Um, forward guidance you know, tells you that the government will do what it can for as long as it can, and so will the central bank. So the the exploitation of nuances and niches in the market seems to be ever-diminishing. Um, and the means by which to apply a macro framework just just seems to be not there. Um, and I don't mean to be going on a diatribe or, you know, just going on about it. So I, I do want to hear how you see it, uh, Kerry, and, and what your views are on it, because for me, it's, it's getting tough. Yeah, I mean, the, you're, you're right, absolutely, in terms of the policy response is very much coalesced around spend and low rates. And, you know, I think there was actually phone calls by, you know, the G4 central bankers, uh, you know, when the pandemic started about what they were going to do. So there's definitely more global coordination around the monetary policy side of things. And even in the emerging world now, you have central banks there doing QE and, and other things to intervene in the market to try and prop them up, which just wouldn't have happened before. Um, for me, though, when I think about the, the macro environment and how to invest through it it's more around these sort of larger secular themes that you see playing out and how to translate them into everyday investments so whether that be you know the technology one which is you know very familiar to most people and how you take advantage of that or you know growth in emerging markets and a, and a rising middle class there so these are themes that are the present for us and they, they don't really change for sort of three four five years but then it's it's really how you play through it so if you really think that the the growth in emerging markets is there, then naturally you sort of tend towards Asia, you tend towards thinking about China. Do you play that through owning discretionary stocks in China? Uh, or do you think about those big American companies that are then operating and, and selling goods in China that the, the middle class want? So I think it's the focus should be on that long run secular trend and just the impact on the market at the minute and how you take advantage of that. So now you could argue that the growing um economic cycle of what we're now in you know that's a move away from defensive and tech legs so you shift away from the US and towards Europe and Japan which are more cyclically orientated economies and markets and that's how you play that through but for me it's yeah going back to those those big secular themes that we don't really think change readily from a macro standpoint uh, and then just trying to allocate within the market at, at any particular time and that's what can be more difficult and what can shift around so there is a degree to be 
to be nimble there. But I think for many investors who have that longer time frame, um, they, they just hang in there and they can avoid a lot of that volatility and that unpleasantness that comes with some of this um, uncertainty in markets. So I'll find that a lot of those themes won't change and it's, it's really do how you uh, make the most of these environments. Sure. And I suppose on that, there, there are two things that, that you know I've been thinking about with regard to that is that the sector that can actually readily invest on that basis. So, I mean, you're looking at somebody with an investable horizon of minimum three years and realistically probably seven over the span so that in that you know sweet spot of five years, they're, they're actually manifesting some sort of returns. These days, increasingly, I mean, who is that? that that's, that's maybe a pension fund. There may be some real money here and there, some, you know, family office of, you know, a sizable nature. But hedge funds, even if they claim to be macro long short and, you know, whatever else, they need to be year on year showing some sort of real return to their clients, even if the mandate is, you know, we look through the five-year investable horizon. So that, even even though the tagline's there, I'm still not a big believer in the fact that those deep pockets in that investable horizon really exists anymore. And then the other point is, I agree with you, sure, you can you can look at secular trends and investing in uh, geographic uh, geographic specific regions and, and based on that. But if you then if you then look at it on a currency hedged basis, unless you're, you're investing in local currency terms, and even then, over that investable horizon, you might get you might get the real asset return and the upside of, of the investment that you've made. But then when you bring it back to, to domestic currency or your, your, your base currency, how much of that is really genuinely getting eroded on, you know, on a real basis? So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just struggling to, to exactly that, reconcile the, the nuance, the reality of how to invest on a macro basis with, with generating real returns. Um, just so, yeah, I can come back to your point around <clears throat> hedge funds and, you know, macro in specific, particular, excuse me, um, you know, one thing we have, and this is a shameless bit of advertising, you know, we also have the guide to the markets. We produce something called the guide to alternatives. And then there's a lot of a little data around um, alternative asset classes, particularly hedge funds. But some of the charts that have just popped into my mind there around the performance of hedge funds over the last, I don't know, five, seven, eight, year, nine years, it hasn't been great, right? It hasn't been the environment mm. where they've, they've done very, very well because they need volatility and it hasn't been a high volatility environment. And suddenly you actually are in one now, not super high volatility that we had with a VIX is at 80 but you know a VIX at say 30 or 35 is actually a good environment for these guys where you have more dispersion in the market um, correlations uh, going the right way in terms of how things are happening and the ability to to pick the companies that are mispriced more readily and so there's a couple of charts in there that illustrate that more clearly and if you look at something like the macro hedge funds versus the broader hedge fund index they tend to outperform when the VIXs are elevated and I think if you mm. think about hedge funds in terms of actually hedge you know there is some potential for these to do a bit better than they have done in prior years because we do have that now elevated volatility that had been missing for some time sure and, and sorry last point not to harp on it, about it but do you not see and we touched on on topically on this when we had martin wedden on the show a few weeks back but do you not see as a consequence of the fact that the niche is ever shrinking and nuances and being able to exploit those even even over the sort of two, three, four year horizon, as a consequence of that, do you not see you know a, a massive rise of something I, I call say esoteric trades or structures? That's stuff that's really quite complex by virtue of just trying to suck out the the, the, the that little extra bip of, of alpha or, or whatever over the next guy. You know, just when it, so when it goes well, it's fine, and you can sort of 
get in and out of the trade over, over the two-year, three-year, whatever horizon. But if you get it wrong and you try to unwind it or something happens, you just blow up spectacularly and that has knock-on effects for broader asset classes, be it in credit or you know stuff like that. So where, where do you see things like that? Yeah, you're right. The just the sheer volume of money that's gone into the markets, you know, over the long run, then the ease of access to some asset classes through ETFs at very low cost, for example, uh, it does do exactly what you say. It makes it harder to make um, or generate extra alpha in some parts of the market. And there is a risk that you know financial ingenuity just goes a bit too far, mm. and these more complex ways of of making money in the market just don't work out. And they always have that sort of tail risk, particularly when it comes to parts of the private market, that that could come through. But there's tail risk in you know public markets as well you know enron sure. lehman's there's companies that are spectacularly collapsed the way you get around that is, is diversification so i absolutely don't disagree with your point that there is always a tail risk when it comes to these things as financial products perhaps come um more complex or overly complex so it's a case of you know buyer beware in terms of what you're getting into um but it's also the case of you know there's there's very easy ways to think about portfolio construction to combat some of this in terms of diversification and, and how you really get around it um, it's certainly a fascinating conversation and something that we'll uh, revisit a lot, I'm sure. Uh, and I do think uh, what it points to for me is on the policy side, you know, uh, whether it's fiscal or mon- monetary, um, you, you've got a kind of a policy put now um, and that, um, you know, for all sorts of, of problems. So um, particularly, for, you know, on the consumer side of things, um, in, in or consumers, if they see stocks unwinding very, very rapidly, um, you, you know, you can see intervention to come in and, and try and soothe um, any fears and for central bankers to come out and say, we are here to support the market. Uh, and then when you have a downturn like uh, we've just been through, where there are very significant uh, impacts on business, you have a, a all these fiscal tools and fiscal channels um, that uh, are becoming more sophisticated. So it does raise an interesting question about, um, you know, uh, I suppose the, the term is, is, is moral hazard um, in some ways, but it's also about, you know, um, what does it mean for wealth creation, um, for, you know, um, effective functioning capitalism, for risk, uh, etc. Um, a conversation I'd um, love to keep coming back to as we go. Uh, Kerry Craig, Executive Director and Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan here in Australia. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, and Ken Vexler um, at Acumen Management in Amsterdam. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, it's been a great chat. No, likewise. Thank you. And, and Kerry, genuinely, thank you for that. I've- Really enjoyed it and thanks for coming on. You're most welcome. You can find us on iTunes uh, at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. Don't forget to hit subscribe and uh, and, and rate the show too. Uh, the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.